I invite you to turn to John chapter 16. We'll pick up where I left off last time. John 16. And we'll begin in verse 16 and look through verse 24. And here this section I've titled, Sorrow Will Turn to Joy. Sorrow to Joy. And look at verse 20. It's kind of key here. Jesus talking to his disciples before his death on the cross. He teaches them that imminent truth. You will be, verse 20, sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This is an acknowledgement that sorrow will be in the life of those disciples, and I would say for all who would follow Christ, you will be sorrowful at various occasions in your life. There's some falsely portraying the Christian life as if you're not going to have any trouble, tribulation, sorrow. That this would be your best life now. And if you believe that, you're in trouble. You have no idea what it would be like to be in the presence of God without sin. Can I help you? Pleasure forevermore. Beyond what you could ever imagine or think. That's the promise. There is a future expectation. We do experience joy and we experience blessings. But the reality is there's oftentimes in life uh, we experience a discontinent chord, if you will, that brings about a melancholy thought, perhaps depression, certainly sorrow, we have certain expectations that aren't met and therefore we're disillusioned at times, disappointed and so forth. Here Jesus acknowledges that. There's no pie in the sky for these disciples. In fact, we, we know historically what happened to all of them. They were martyred. Except for John who they made the attempt and yet he was isolated on Patmos. He lived a difficult life. All of them did. In fact, Jesus told them to begin with that if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, here's what I want you to do. Pick up your cross and follow me. I'm going to talk about the cross here in a minute. But this was, would have been an instrument of great pain, of great sorrow, of great suffering. And this is what he called the disciples to follow. Follow in this. A life of sacrifice. A life in which you would have genuine sorrow. But notice, at least here in this text, and I'm highlighting verse 20, that that event or course of events, whatever they might be, that brings about sorrow, Jesus promises to them that that sorrow is going to result in joy. In other words, the very thing that caused the sorrow is the very thing that is will lead to joy. William Cooper put it this way in his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I like this line here. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy. 
and shall break in blessings on your head. Yeah, break in blessings on your head. So the response is, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. And behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That thing that brought upon the disciples here, and perhaps in your circumstance, is that very thing that is going to result in joy. Because of who God is. That's why the psalmist reprimands himself by saying, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? That will occur, for sure. But the way to resolve that is to look to God. And that's what the psalmist does. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Great joy and praise to him. We're admonished to trust God, and in so doing will result in joy and praise. A joyful disposition, even in the midst of a time of great sorrow. This is the message Jesus gives to his disciples. They will be sorrowful, but their sorrow will turn to joy. And this, beloved, is a precious hope for all those that would follow Christ. Let's look at it in the context in which he gives it, verse 16 of chapter 16. Jesus says this, A little while, and you'll see me no longer, and again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father... So, they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So, he said to them, is what you're asking among yourselves what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. You you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be full. Let us pray. Father, we come to you on the admonition of Jesus Christ to ask, and we're asking. We're asking in Jesus' name that, indeed, we would receive a fullness of joy granted to us through Christ our Lord. I pray for your people. In whatever sorrow and difficulty they might find themselves in this day, the days to come, 
I pray in the midst of it, they would see your smiling providence and have great, deep-seated joy, a joy in Christ our Lord. I pray in his name. Amen. Before I break down this text a little bit further, I want you to note a couple things that surround it. And the first one is this obvious illustration here of sorrow to joy, and he uses this illustration of childbirth, verse 21. It says you're going to be sorrowful, but your sorrow is going to be joyful. And here it is, that very thing that brings about pain, suffering, sorrow, however you're going to describe it, is that very thing that brings about joy. And that is often the case, and you may not always see it in the immediate that that, will, that is the case, but I think it is, and we can make that argument for it. Certainly that's the illustration here. When the, verse 21, the, she's sorrowful because her hour has come. The hour is the time of great pain, suffering, sorrow. It is real. It is genuine. And it is not wrong to have a sorrowful and painful response. It hurts. But note, in this illustration, it is an hour that is temporal in time. And what follows is great joy, which is a greater reality and that overshadows whatever painful moment of time that you might be in. A great illustration for this idea of sorrow turning to joy. Second note here is introductory. This is quite a lot of phraseology here, this enigmatic statements, a little while. Verse 16, note there. And if I'm counting right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of those statements, a little while, right? You've kind of noticed it. It's actually kind of hard to follow because this little while is, is repeated. Verse 16, you got a couple times, and verse 17, a couple times, and 18, 19, it's all mentioned there. So what's going on here with this repetition of this little while that's mentioned? Well, in the phraseology of it, if you have a little trouble following along and trying to figure out what in the world he's saying, you're in good company because the disciples did too, right? Uh, they, they, they were wondering. And, of course, Jesus knows what's in their heart and what they're thinking. And so he knows that, and he says, well, this is what you're thinking, so let me try to explain it to you. Jesus often spoke in this way, enigmatically. Um, you might think of it as unclear. In fact, in verse 25, that's for next week, notice here, he said, I said these things to you in figures of speech. But I'm not going to talk to you, that is the disciples, in that form anymore. I'm going to speak to you plainly about the Father. And so, he, here you get a, a, an idea that, yes, in Jesus' ministry, in his teaching, he often taught in this way. 
in a way that was a little hard to follow. Why? Because when Jesus taught in his ministry, it wasn't always private. Oftentimes it was public, or at least some unbelievers heard. Even Judas, for that matter, was in the inside circle, and he certainly heard much until he was dismissed on this night. So there is a public presentation of some of this truth, but there's also a private presentation of this truth. And and that's what's in, in mind here. He's going to speak plainly to the believers. This way of speaking like this, and it can be hard to follow, but I think it's done for two purposes. One, in the in public here, it is his mercy in not bringing about greater judgment for those that would reject Jesus Christ. Now, I know it's hard to fathom this, but Jesus taught. He says, listen, if all the miracles were done in Bethsaida and Chorazin, if those were done in places like Sodom and Gomorrah, these folks would have repented long ago. Do you understand what great thing it was to have God incarnate walk on earth to be attested to by not the shenanigans that people claim today, but we're talking about real, genuine miracles where people actually rose from the dead, were actually given sight, were actually unable to speak and then could speak, were actually lame and then could immediately walk. This is miraculous. And to deny Christ's work brings great judgment. And might I say right even now, Christ's work is finished. It has been attested to. It is recorded in the scripture. And for you to reject his word, this brings great judgment. It is plain now. It is plain to see. And there will be no excuse. No excuse for rejecting. There is a idea in in Luke, he describes to his disciples in Luke 8, I'll just read it for you in verse 10, to you, speaking of his followers, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. There's a certain degree of grace in that. Because to reject Jesus' teaching is a great judgment. And so he spares them to some degree in the way he is speaking. But he gave the explanation of his illustrations and of his statements to his disciples. And beyond that, we know, we've already read in chapters 14, 15, and 16, that he then sends the Holy Spirit, who will declare to his followers the answers to this. That is, he will guide them in all truth. Chapter 16 and verse 13. So here we are then with this statement that's sort of an enigma. And how are, we, how are we then to understand it? Well, we have all of Scripture and we have the Holy Spirit who will guide us in this truth. So 
let's take a little closer look at the statement. Particularly, let's go with the lead of that verse 16. A little while, and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Again, one of the, re- one of the other reasons too, by the way, I would add that sometimes it takes time for you to put your mind on this is for that very purpose. As the psalmist said, you meditate in the word of God day and night. Think through this. Engage your mind. Now, on this phraseology led off by verse 16, I said it's a difficult statement to some degree, and a lot of commentary ink has been spilled trying to determine exactly what this is being referred to. Some will see this statement as you can understand in a little while, that's just a little time, not going to see me, and then you will see me, right? So, some have concluded this is speaking specifically of Jesus' death and then his resurrection. Indeed, that's what has happened. Others think that, well, this is speaking of his ascending into heaven, and probably a minority report on that, Because you'll no longer see me, but then you will. How? You'll see me in the sending of the Holy Spirit, which he has promised. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is another of the same essence, another of the same kind. And we'll get into that in a bit. And then finally, some others have thought, well, this speaks of the end of the age. He's he's gone, but, but Jesus has promised that he is coming back. I've concluded, really, I think all three are true, and you can show them from the text to some degree, and certainly part of the promise of the believer that's been given are these basic three ideas. There's this sorrow that's going to come, and that very sorrow will bring about joy. These painful events, whatever they might be, like childbirth, if you will, temporal They'll be superseded by a great joy. And let me give you an immediate application in case I don't get to finish all of this today. And that is simply this. Whatever circumstance you, as a follower of Christ, might find yourself in, as painful, sorrowful, depressing, or whatever the terminology you want to use, I want to challenge you simply this. You can look on the back side of your worship folder. I wrote it down for you. And I alliterated it because that's what you're supposed to do. It might help you to remind yourself. It helps me. The believer in Christ can live in joy in the midst of sorrow. You can triumph in the midst of tears by focusing on three key aspects of Christ's statement. One, you can have joy in the cross of Jesus Christ. Two, in the comfort of Christ, in sending the comforter, as he's called, the Holy Spirit. And finally, joy, and I call it the crown, or you might even think the coronation. I'll get into that to some degree, of Jesus Christ in the eschaton, the end of the ages. So, all of this, in the midst of whatever sorrow you might find yourself in, is to look to the joy of Christ In the past, in the cross, in the present, 
with the Comforter and the future in the coronation of Christ in the crowning him King of Kings. Look to Christ. Look to Christ in what he has accomplished. Look to Christ in what he is currently doing and the future promises of the eternal state in which the beloved will reign with him forever and ever. Revelation 22, 5, concluding this thought, there'll be no more night there. No more darkness, if you will. There'll need no lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Joy is not then based on circumstances which might change but in Christ, who is unchanging. Let's look at each one with the time that remains. The first one is a call for joy in the cross. That is, the accomplished work of Christ in the past. Your joy must be rooted in that. Notice verse 16. I think that's the emphasis here of this verse, the primary, it, when he says, you will no longer see me, and then you will see me. I think that's the immediate aspect of this statement. It does refer to Jesus' death and resurrection. In just a little while, that is, that next day, he will suffer and die on the cross. He will then be buried. And you can imagine the kind of sorrow that they would be in. The disillusionment. We're, we're looking hindsight. And we already have inspired scripture that we're looking at. But they didn't have any of that. So they weren't sure how all of this would work out. It looked like everything was falling apart. It looked like absolute failure. But Christ rose from the dead. This burial in time will be a time of great sorrow. Very painful for them in particular. But it's short-lived and way overshadowed. By the resurrection, isn't it? They don't even remember it anymore. They forget about it. Christ is seen, risen, in a glorified body. And Christ had promised that in chapter 12 as he prepares to die on the cross. Jesus will say this in verse 23 of chapter 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? To show the beauty of his divine perfections. And how was that beauty going to be displayed? It would be in the death. In the death of his on the cross. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You get the imagery? Take one little kernel of corn, put it in the ground, and what happens? Many ears of corn with a lot of fruit on it. That's the imagery there. It doesn't remain alone. It bears much fruit. This hour he speaks of, and as he spoke of in John, is an appointed time. It would be, don't minimize, it would be great pain, great suffering. But this is a time that is appointed. It was a time that was filled with sorrow and grief. And yet it was necessary to accomplish the very purposes of God. And even though his disciples then didn't fully understand what was going on. 
And might I say this by way of application, beloved, there is nothing that truly happens by accident. We call things accidents. I didn't mean this to happen or this just happened. I, I get it. I understand our phraseology. As long as you understand the theology of it, and that is God's always in charge. As R.C. Sproul once said, if there was just one bad O-ring on a rocket ship which caused it to crash, could you imagine just one bad thing in the earth that wasn't under God's care? Everything would absolutely fall apart. God is upholding all things by the word of his power, including in all of these contentions that might come along. Paul described it this way. We know, beloved, that all things, even painful things, even sorrowful things, even disappointing things, work together for good. How how do they work together for good? Because God has a purpose in all and is accomplishing his purpose for those that love him and who are called according to his purpose. It will not work out for good if you're outside of his good intentions, if you're outside of the mercy of God, then it might redound to your call to repentance and trust and finding refuge in him. The very events then that bring about some of the greatest pain will be those things that bring about the greatest joy. The cross was awful. And we look at it today, we sit there and display this cross. This is an instrument of death. It's kind of ironic. We don't think of it in that term, do we? We think of it as something absolutely beautiful and wonderful. We sing songs about the cross, don't we? People wear jewelry with crosses on them. We paint different pictures with cross. Sometimes we'll put a cross on the front of your bulletin. Why? Because it's glorious and beautiful. This very instrument of death became an instrument of life for those that are in Christ. This very instrument of shame became an instrument of glory. This very instrument of pain became an instrument of pleasure forevermore for those that are in Jesus Christ. This cross then becomes the central message of the apostles as they preach. Paul would say to the church at Corinth, we preach Christ and him crucified. It's a stumbling block, yes, to the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's great beauty in the cross. It was foolishness to the Gentiles who thought this would accomplish anything. And to the Jews, they thought this was an instrument of great shame. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. But alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die, that he would devote such a sacred head for a sinner such as I. It's at the cross. It's at the cross where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight and and now I'm what? 
happy, joyful all the day. Can I tell you this? If you're in great sorrow today, tomorrow, or days to come, would you look at the cross? Would you think of Christ? It will bring great joy to you as you look to the cross. As you hear the very words here coming up in a few weeks in chapter 19 when Jesus is hanging on the cross in suffering, pain, and shame, bearing the sin that I would otherwise need to bear. And he says these words in chapter 19 and verse 30. It is finished. It's complete. That's why I can look to the cross with great joy. There's nothing else to be done. Atonement is accomplished by Christ. It is completed. It is perfected. There's no further suffering to go on. He didn't suffer more in hell like some false prophets might teach. No, it was finished right there on the cross. Sin imputed to him. Sin that he didn't practice or, or, or um, deserve to be uh, 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 accused of. He was accused of nothing. It was imputed to him. And he bore our sin on that tree. And the payment for such is complete. The word here described is a word that's used to describe when you cancel a debt. And it gets stamped, paid in full. It is truly finished. Peter said in his writing, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and it is by his wounds that we are healed. Beloved, we can look at the cross and find great joy because of the accomplishment of Christ in atoning for our sin. There is no work of righteousness that you will do to atone for all the evil that you have done, all the evil that you will do. Christ has completed it all, and that ought to give you great joy every day. To know that there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Jesus Christ. If that ever hits you, he may overwhelm you, and grant you great joy in the midst of whatever circumstance. Do you see how minimal everything else would be in relationship to the cross? Does anything else actually matter? Your sins are atoned for. Christ accomplished it. This is a historical event. This isn't something we look forward to do that God's promised that he will do, which he will complete all his promises. But this is already accomplished in history. It's done. And beloved, just like the disciples, they have great joy to see the resurrection of Christ who died and now is alive. Number two, that's one source of great joy to put in your toolkit, the cross. Can I give you something else? It's the comforter. 